This week's Parsha of Kisavo begins with the mitzvah of bringing bikurim, which are the first fruits that grow year to year in your field, in your orchard, your first grains or fruits, and you have to bring them to Yerushalayim, you have to bring them to Jerusalem, to the Beis HaMikdash, to the temple, and you give them to the Kohanim. As part of the procedure for giving the fruits to the Kohen, the farmer makes a declaration, the text of which is described by the Torah. It says, V'yanisa v'amarta, you shall call out and say, L'fnei Hashem alkecha, before the Lord your God, Arami oved avi, an Aramean sought to destroy my forefather, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there with a small number of people, and there he became a great nation, mighty and numerous, and the Egyptians demonized and afflicted us, and they imposed hard labor upon us. So we cried out to the Lord God of our forefathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt, with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, with great awe and with signs and wonders. And he brought us to this place and he gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, I have brought the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. You shall lay it before the Lord your God, etc. The four verses of this declaration are actually used as the summary of the story of the Exodus that we recite annually at the Passover Seder. It's interesting. On the night of the Seder, we have a mitzvah to retell the entire story of the Exodus. The question is, how are we supposed to go about that on that night? Which details of the story do we include? Which do we omit? One way to do it would seem to be to take the book of Shmos, the book of Exodus, of the Torah, and read the story. It's about the first four parshios in that book, and tell the whole story by reading it. We think our Seder is long. Can you imagine if we would read the entire first four partios of the book of Exodus? Instead, the rabbis established the Haggadah text based on these four verses in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Devarim, which are a synopsis of the entire story. We don't just say these four verses, we read the Midrashic comments on them, which explain them, which expound on them, which give many more details that aren't mentioned in the text. And it actually compares these verses, the concise version of the story, to the longer, full version, which is in the book of Exodus. But this is what the rabbis established as the text of the Haggadah, as the main text of the actual telling the story of the Exodus at the Seder. This mitzvah of Bikurim is one of the many points in the Torah where the focus is on our gratitude for everything that the Almighty has given us, and particularly the land and its produce. So this is an opportunity to think about different topics related to the Torah's attitude of gratitude. A remarkable aspect of these four verses, quite a surprising one actually, is that part of the expression of gratitude, a large part of it actually, is the trials, tribulations, and challenges that we faced in the early part of our history. It first talks about the threat of Lavan, how he tried to destroy Yaakov. It talks about how the Egyptians treated us very badly and afflicted us, and they made us do difficult labor. We cried out to God. God saw our affliction, our toil, our oppression. It goes into the detail about, about the difficulties we had. And then it does talk about our redemption from Egypt, the miracles, finally bringing us to the land of Israel. The question is, why do we need to go through all of these hard parts of our history? Let's just thank God for the land he gave us. 
one way to look at the inclusion of these difficulties in the expression of gratitude is that it's much easier to appreciate the good things we enjoy, like the land of Israel and the fruits that it produces, if we contrast it with the difficulty that led up to coming into the land of Israel. And it gives us a deep appreciation of what we now have. Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky, at the very end of his book, Living Each Day, mentions another lesson from the inclusion of these difficulties in the verses of gratitude, is that we have to realize that when we have real gratitude, we'll even have gratitude to those parts of our life or those part of our experiences which were difficult and painful at the time. We'll appreciate, at least looking back in hindsight, how those experiences were ultimately for our good. And this serves as a reminder for us when we're actually going through difficult, challenging, and hard, painful times that we may realize at a later subsequent time in our lives how these trials and tribulations actually resulted in something positive, and they were constructive in some way. Our gratitude must be all-encompassing, meaning we don't bear resentment for the suffering we experienced. We're grateful even for that part of our history. That's what the inclusion of these difficult parts of our history teaches us about gratitude and about what real gratitude means, that it's all-encompassing of all aspects of our life. In the words of Rabbi Tversky, we rejoice with a full heart for the past as well as for the present. Our joy is unrestrained and unencumbered by the painful periods of our history. I want to share with you a few anecdotes, vignettes, and tidbits from the life of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, Rabbi Moses Feinstein, that are relevant to the topic of gratitude. Rabbi Feinstein passed away at the age of 91 in March of 1986. Rabbi Moshe was born on the seventh day of Adar, in Uzda, which is a city near Minsk, Belarus, and he was taught by his father, David, Reb David. Rabbi Feinstein was born in Belarus and became a rabbi at a very young age, where he was trapped behind the Iron Curtain until he was finally allowed to leave in 1936, and he came to New York, where he became Rosh Hashiva of MTJ, Mesivta Tiferes Yerushalayim, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. His main work is Igros Moshe, the Letters of Moshe. It's his halachic responsa. Seven volumes were published in his lifetime, and two posthumously. He also published his advanced Talmudic lectures, which he gave to students in his yeshiva and in his son's yeshiva in Staten Island. And that book is called Dibros Moshe. In the Hagdama, in the introduction to the volume on Bavakama, he mentions how he wants to thank Hashem for all the kindnesses that he did for him until today, very much fitting with the theme of the mitzvah of Bikurim and Parsha. And he thanks him specifically for taking him out of Russia, him and his family out of Russia, where they suffered religious persecution 10 years prior to publishing this volume. He says that even when he was there, he is appreciative of the fact that he was able to maintain his studies, and even when he came to America, he was able to settle in a place of Torah, Makam Torah, and to be able to spread Torah among his students. That's in terms of Rabbi Feinstein's appreciation to God for what he did for him. But he was also very appreciative of other human beings. 
One time the payphone rang 8.30 in the morning in the yeshiva in Staten Island. So if you're walking by a payphone, in the days of payphones, you pick up the payphone. So the mashgiach of the yeshiva, he's one of the rabbis on the staff, his name is Rav Gershon Weiss, he picks up the phone and guess who it was? It was Rabbi Feinstein. He said he wants to speak to Mrs. Yeager, who led the yeshiva kitchen. So he went and got Mrs. Yeager, and she picked up the phone. And Rabbi Feinstein said that he he wants her to please forgive him because there was a Hanukkah party that Rabbi Feinstein attended the night before in yeshiva, and she prepared the food for it. And he didn't have the opportunity to thank her for her effort because she left early. So he wanted to thank her now. That's why he was calling. This is a person who was one of the world's foremost halakhic authorities. He was a Jewish communal leader. He had his own family, his own affairs to attend to, but he took out the time to remember the next morning that he didn't get to thank the yeshiva chef. A One more episode from Feinstein, Rabbi Yaakov Haftler writes in his memoirs, and these are all, all these stories are collected in the Sefer called Darche Moshe, Agudas Yisrael of America had for many years, for a span of several years, its annual convention in a hotel in New York. The organizers of the event told all the many rabbis who were attending that their hotel rooms were already paid for. They don't, they don't have to worry about that. And Rabbi Haftler related, out of all the 40 rabbis that attended this convention, three of them approached the front desk at the end before they left. They wanted to know if the organization that paid for their stay also paid the tip of all the workers, the waiters and housekeepers, etc., that waited on them during their stay at the hotel during the convention. They confirmed that, yes, the tips were also paid, but one of the rabbis, one of the three rabbis, and that's Rabbi Feinstein, he wasn't satisfied with that. He still went and personally thanked each one of the people who helped him, each one of the staff members of the hotel that helped him over the weekend before he left. One more episode. Rabbi Feinstein once attended the installation of Rabbi Shmuel Arnstein in his new position as rabbi of a synagogue in the Bronx. And for him to get to the Bronx from the Lower East Side was quite a trip. He took the subway and he had to take three different trains to get there. Probably took him half a day for the whole project. Why did he go to this particular rabbi's installation? The reason became clear, that rabbi, before he got a position in this shul, he was trying to get a position in a different shul. And in that different shul, he eventually withdrew himself from his candidacy because he had learned that Rabbi Feinstein's son-in-law was also a candidate for that same position. And he had said, if Rabbi Feinstein's son-in-law is being considered for this position, I'm withdrawing myself, he should take the position. So Rabbi Feinstein, out of appreciation for him doing this, he made sure to attend the installation of Rabbi Arnstein in his new shul in the Bronx, even though it was such a big effort for him. A similar story is told. Every year there was apparently a former student who hosted an event, possibly a fundraising event or some other type of event, in his own home for Rabbi Feinstein's yeshiva. All these people would come to the house and Rabbi Feinstein would speak. At the end of that event every year, Guess where Rabbi Feinstein went? He went and made sure to personally thank the man's wife 
for preparing the food and setting up the event, and he would not leave until he did so. Another interesting story, these types of stories are especially meaningful to me because they show that our greatest Torah scholars, our greatest leaders, put such an emphasis on Midos character traits, which to us seem so simple, but they put a very big priority and importance and emphasis on those character traits. And that's an important lesson we can learn from them. I just recently heard a lecture from Rabbi Yitzhak Breitowitz, his observation regarding the attention to detail with these types of things. He was talking about a different story about the sensitivity of Rabbi Feinstein. And his point was, is that we may or may not be able to become as committed and as knowledgeable Jews as these great leaders. But an example that they can set for us, that they could set for us all, is in these areas of their mitos, of their care and sensitivity to other people. That's something that we all have to become great in. And that's that's something that we can all learn from. And even if we can't reach the level of sensitivity that they displayed. We are able to get closer to it. And we are able to improve, and we have a goal to shoot for. Moshe commands the people to stand on two mountains, Har Eval and Har Grizim, Mount Grizim and Mount Ebal. The purpose is, this will be a spectacle to encourage the Jewish people to commit themselves to observing a Torah. The Kohanim and the Levium would stand in the middle between the two mountains, and they would turn to one of the mountains and say a list of blessings. They would turn to Mount Grizim, and then for the curses, they would turn to the other mountain, Har Eval, and they would recite the curses, and all the people would respond Amen after each of the blessings or after each of the curses. The blessings and the curses were mirror images of each other, and the Torah just lists the curses. Rashi explains that you just reverse each one to know the blessing. So the curses were, Cursed be the man who makes any graven or molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the handiwork of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall respond, saying, Amen. Cursed be he who degrades his father and mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he who moves back his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he who misguides a blind person on the way, and all the people say, Amen. Cursed be he who perverts the judgment of the stranger, the orphan, or the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he who lies with his father's wife, thus uncovering the corner of his father's garment, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he who lies with any animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he who lies with his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he who strikes his fellow in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he who takes a bribe to put an innocent person to death, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he who does not uphold the words of this Torah to fulfill them, and all the people shall say, Amen. If you read all of the curses, a majority of them is that the sin that's being mentioned is done secretly or privately. The fundamental question regarding these 11 curses or blessings is why these 11 sins? Are these more important than other sins? Are they worse? Why do these have to be singled out to be part of this public proclamation and ceremony? Ibn Ezra says that these 11 are singled out 
because you're able to do them in private. As it says regarding making the idol, it says visam basoser, you place it in a private place. No one's going to know about it. The reason this whole ceremony was necessary for sins that could be done in private is because for other severe sins, if someone would do them, they would get executed. So those don't need extra reinforcement and emphasis. It's only sins that could be done in private and no one will know about them, and therefore the person can never suffer the consequence of execution. Those need a special emphasis. Those need to be reinforced with a blessing, and they need the deterrent of everybody accepting a curse upon anyone who would do any of those things. There's a fascinating passage in the Rambam's Mor Nevuchim, God to the Perplexed, part 3, at the end of chapter 33, where he's talking about sanctity. And it's very interesting. He says that sanctity doesn't only refer to spirituality, it also refers to hygiene. This is what he says. Cleaning garments, washing the body, and removal of dirt also constitute one of the purposes of this law. But this comes after the purification of the actions and the purification of the heart from polluting opinions and polluting moral qualities. Meaning, what you have to do first is perfect your character, perfect your opinions, perfect your morality, and then... It's also a mitzvah, it's also an obligation to have an outward purity as well. I continue the quote. For to confine oneself to cleaning the outward appearance through washing and cleaning the garment while having at the same time a lust for various pleasures merits the utmost blame. Meaning, if you think that as long as your exterior looks good, it doesn't matter what's going on inside your, your character, inside your mind, then you've got a problem. And he quotes Yeshaya Hanavi, Isaiah, They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go unto the gardens behind one in the midst, eating the flesh of swine and the abominable and the mouse, they will all together perish, God says. And he explains this verse without getting into details. He says, meaning Isaiah says, They purify themselves and sanctify themselves in the open and public places, and afterwards, when they are alone in their rooms and in the interior of their houses, they are engaged in acts of disobedience, that is, in their unbridled license in eating forbidden food, the swine and the detestable thing, and the mouse, and the Rambam concludes, to sum up the dictum, their outward appearances are clean and universally known as unsullied and pure, whereas innerly they are engaged in the pursuit of their desires and the pleasures of their bodies. But this is not the purpose of the law, for the first purpose is to restrain desire, the purification of the outer coming after the purification of the inner. Solomon has drawn attention to those who rely upon washing the body and cleaning the garments, whereas their actions are impure and their moral qualities evil. For he says, there is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, and yet are not washed from their filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up.
In the second part of this passage that I just shared with you, Maimonides broadens the application of what he originally says. He expands the criticism of these people from just having a good appearance in terms of their hygiene and cleanliness. He expands it to refraining from sin in public, but being engaged in sin and mired in sin in private. Rav Salvechik points out, this is on page 212 in the Chumash Mesoras Harav Devarim, his summary is that according to the Rambam, there's a prohibition of hypocrisy, an additional prohibition that extends beyond the sins that are being committed. That's what this Rambam is expressing, the idea that hypocrisy itself is a problem. The Torah doesn't prohibit whatever prohibitions someone's going to do in private. It goes so far as to add an additional layer of prohibition in the hypocrisy that lies in doing sins in private. Rev. Salvechik applies that idea of the prohibition of hypocrisy to these 11 curses along the lines of the Ibn Ezra. That the reason the Torah emphasizes and singles out these 11 sins and makes this ceremony with the blessings and the curses regarding these particular sins is because they're examples of hypocrisy. And that needs that in and of itself, and the severity of hypocrisy in and of itself requires additional emphasis because of how unpleasing it is to God. The main feature of this parsha is the tochacha, which is the rebuke, which not only takes up the most space in the parsha, but is the most dramatic and outstanding section of the parsha. And the tochacha begins with the positive of the brachos, the blessings, and the benefits that we will accrue as a nation if we observe the Torah. And then it continues with the consequences that we will suffer, the punishments that we will suffer if we forsake the Torah. We're just going to focus on one small aspect of the tochacha, and that is after the Torah describes all of these unbelievably horrific nightmares of curses and tragedies that we're going to experience, and I'll just read some of them. Cursed will be your food basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed will be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your soil, the fruit of your livestock, those born from your cattle and the flock of your sheep. You shall be cursed when you come, you shall be cursed when you depart. The Lord will send the curse of shortages, confusion, and turmoil upon you and every one of your endeavors, which you undertake until it destroys you, until you quickly vanish because of your evil deeds in forsaking me. The Lord will make pestilence cleave to you until it has exterminated you from upon the land to which you are coming to possess it. And your skies above will be like copper and the earth below you like iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your land into powder and dust, raining down upon you from the heavens until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be broken before your enemy. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with hemorrhoids, with oozing sores, and with dry lesions, from which you will be unable to be cured. The Lord will strike you with insanity, with blindness, and with bewilderment. You will grope at midday as the blind man gropes in the dark. You will be unsuccessful in your ways. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes. Your donkey will snatch right in front of you, will not return to you. Your sons and daughters will be given over to another people. Your eyes will see this and long for them all day long, but you will be powerless. People unknown to you will eat up the fruit of your soil and the result of all your toil, etc., etc. Until finally, and this is really just in the middle of the curses because they continue after this, it says, Tachas, because you did not serve the Lord your God with happiness 
and with gladness of heart when you had an abundance of everything. The Torah is saying you will get these punishments because you did not serve the Lord your God with happiness and with gladness of heart when you had an abundance abundance of everything. Meaning, had the Jewish people, and this is all prophetic, of course, had the Jewish people served the Lord their God with happiness and gladness of heart, while they had an abundance of everything, they would still have that abundance of everything. The fact that they neglected to serve with happiness and gladness of heart made them lose their abundance of everything and suffer all the consequences that the Torah specifies. The Rambam, at the end of the laws of Lulav, and the laws of Sukkot, he points out that there's a particular type of simcha, of happiness, of gladness, that the Jewish people are being criticized for lacking here. It's possible to read this criticism that we weren't happy. We had everything and we weren't happy. The Rambam says that's not what it's saying. If you read it carefully, you see what it means, and we'll first read what the Rambam says. He says, the simcha, the happiness that a person rejoices with when performing the mitzvos and with the love of God that commanded those mitzvos, it's a great service, it's a great job, it's an important function, it's an important obligation to have the happiness while doing the mitzvos. And anyone that withholds from himself this happiness, meaning someone who does the commandments. We're talking about someone who performs the commandments. They do everything. They don't just do the basic commandments. They do extra. They do the chumras. They do the extra stringencies. But they don't do it with joy. Roy lihipari menu, that person should be punished. As it says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with happiness and with gladness of heart. Meaning, Maimonides proves that if you do, if you follow all the commandments, you do everything, but you lack the simcha, you lack the happiness, our verse proves that that person deserves punishment for that. And that is what? That is that is either the reason or at least one factor in all the terrible suffering that's described in the Tocha, in the rebuke, in this Parsha. Lack of happiness, of appreciation for performing the mitzvahs, performing the commandments. There are a couple of practical aspects to translate happiness in performing mitzvahs. What does that mean exactly? Rev. Dov Yaffe quotes, first of all, the Magad Mishnah, who says, very simply, this relates to our perspective. Do we look at our mitzvah performance as discharging an obligation that we're forced and compelled to do? Or are we glad for the opportunity to perform the mitzvot? And do we view whatever effort it may take to do so as something very easy? And that is why we're here. Do we feel that the mitzvot are difficult? There's a difficulty in doing mitzvot? Is it like we're paying a tax that we don't really want to pay? Is it something unavoidable? Or is doing a mitzvah our greatest privilege? Rabbi Chaim Vital, who is a great Kabbalist, says something very interesting. A person should think about, very practical, when someone's doing a mitzvah, they should look at it as if they are making, they're profiting thousands of dollars 
Elif Alafim Dinari Zav. They're gaining thousands of golden coins by doing that mitzvah. Meaning, whatever is precious to you, whatever excites you, you should view doing a mitzvah in the same light. In more contemporary terms, Rev Salvechik puts it like this, a mitzvah is not only a perfunctory action or divine performance, it must also translate into experiential terms. The Torah demands that we experience joy and satisfaction when we perform a mitzvah. A Jew fasts on Yom Kippur because God commanded it. Simultaneously, the result of such obedience to God must be an ecstatic, illuminating experience that transforms a person's personality.